today's episode. We have found our way to chapter 4 of James's letter. The Apostle James warns his readers against giving in to worldly passions. More than that, he reminds them that whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. But how do we live in this tension, rejecting friendship with the world, yet living in the world, and loving others as Christ has loved us? Good morning. Today is Friday, November 4th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Our program is brought to you by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Visit them at lhfmissions.org. Well, our guest for today is the Reverend Mark Loder. Uh, Mark Loder, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, good morning. It's uh, nice to be with you. I'm pastor and administrator of St. James Lutheran Church and School here in Howard Lake, Minnesota. So St. James Lutheran Church and St. James Lutheran School, uh, what an apropos name because we're studying (laughs) St. James's letter today. Correct. What does uh, what does ministry look like for you there? Uh, let the listeners know at home, you know, just what it's like to be the pastor there and what the school's all about and what God is doing for you there. Uh, sure. Um, it's uh, pretty busy, like with anyone in ministry. Our school is a thriving school. We've got about 114 students. Uh, I'm the administrator of the school as well as the pastor of the church. And so doing the balancing act of all of the ministry things as well as teaching and helping our teachers and staff do all the things that we need to do at the school. The Lord's doing plenty of wonderful things things here in this place. That's absolutely amazing. And I'm excited to hear, uh, both from your experience and from your study, uh, what we have to talk about today with James chapter 4. But before we dive into the text, would you please start us off with prayer? I will. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, without your help, our labor is useless. And without your light, our search is in vain. Invigorate our study of your holy word, that by due diligence and right discernment, we may establish ourselves and others in your holy faith. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Loder. Well, you know, in today's text, chapter 4, you know, being the Proverbs of the Bible, as we've discussed on other episodes, it's, it's a little bit disconnected, each sort of chunk that James gives us of, of wise instruction. So I'm going to split it up into about five sections, and I'd like to begin with verses 1 through 3. Here we go. Sure. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. You spend it on your passions. So in these first three verses, brother, we have uh, James talking about submitting to the wisdom and life of faith. And right now it's about warped desires being stimulated by the flesh. Uh, He gets right to the point, as he often does. Uh, Tell us about this. What's going on? 
Uh, yeah, so um, looking quick uh, first at that first verse, what causes quarrels and the fights among you, the warring that is among you, um, it's he takes us right to the internal reality of that, the passions that are, are at war within us. And I see that as the disdain for the second table of the law as a result, actually, of breaking the first commandment, of putting other gods before us. And that word passions or pleasure that moves us to despise God and all his goodness for the sake of having what, well, what I want, passions and pleasure. You know, the root word for that, as I was looking into this, is the word that we have for hedonism, um, hedone, I believe is how it's translated or spoken. And that is the, 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 the teaching that pleasure or happiness is the soul or the chief good in life. In other words, your pleasure is God. And so living to satisfy the flesh leads a sinner to replace the creator with the creation, we look after all of the things that can satisfy the desires. And so, really, I, this first verse, as I read it, just really kind of smacked me in the head, so to say, as the reality of the things that we are dealing with in this very time. It's a very real, applicable um, portion of Scripture, much as is all of Scripture for us. And so, really, at the heart of this, we're dealing with idolatry, I believe. Mm. Yeah, I can definitely appreciate that. You know, the, James begins with this uh, with this question, right? What causes quarrels and fights, wars and fighting and battles among you? It's a rhetorical question, but he answers it immediately. Isn't Correct. this this right? Your hedonism, right? Your your hedone, your 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 the fact that you your God is your passion. And you're so right. When we look out into the landscape of the world today, we think about all of the divisions that people have. And on the one hand, right, Pastor, it seems that all the way back in James, they have those same issues. So in, in a small way, that's comforting that some of this isn't new. On the other hand, it's not so comforting that in 2,000 years, we still haven't learned our lesson. And people seemingly, at least in our lifetimes, are more divided than ever. And is James getting to the heart of the problem that we even have today, that it's all about people's individual passions, everybody's so concerned about pleasing themselves and not God, that we're all seemingly divided? Yeah, and it's that, you know, as I often teach in catechesis and in Bible study, it's that original damning question of all humanity, did God really say? And so everything that we chase after, we're bouncing it against the truth. And more times than not, unfortunately, our own truth, our own passion or pleasure or desire seems to rule over. And, you know, as I I tend to teach it, all of the good things that we have, the blessings of God's creation, we take what is good and misuse it, which is uh, then turning it into an idol. All idols come from something that was meant uh, for good, and as Luther puts it, then we turn to that for something that we um, trust and 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 look for um, the good out of. 
that makes a lot of sense. It, it reminds me of a comment that I always make. You know, when we talk about heretics, for instance, someone who espouses heresy, no one wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, I'm going to be a heretic. No, they, <laughs> right. they, they follow after something that, that is seemingly good, and they go to such an extreme in its proclamation that they've strayed from the faith, to make it very simple. So, so in the same way, you know, pleasures are given to us by God in order to enliven, um, you know, our existence on earth. They're given to us to motivate us in certain ways. But then if all we do is to just try to satisfy those, those uh, hedonistic urges, if that's all we're dedicating our lives to, then absolutely they become an idol to us. That's what you're living for. That's uh, that's where I think Luther also said something about wherever you spend your time and money is your God, and and that's what happens when we when we spend all of our time and money and energy chasing after these worldly pleasures, they become an idol, our God. Yeah, and then that idol that I, that idol replaces faith. So passion and pleasure, it's it's that battle of passion and pleasure versus faith. Yes, yes. You know, and even in the previous chapter, he says, this is uh, James 3.16, probably it's good for us to memorize as John 3.16, because James 3.16 says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So God is a God of order, and he's called us to do things in good order, not just in the church, but in our lives. And jealousy and selfish ambition, or envy even, these things are not becoming of the Christian. And this is where James is getting this idea. There's obviously some fighting going on amongst the, the Christians, the diaspora, where James is writing. Correct. And, it, you know, and it's even to have in mind somewhat of a, um, you know, this this quarreling and fighting is is military language. So it's not just this little bit bickering. It's things are not going well. And, um, you know, certainly we could turn to um, uh, the reality that what he has said before, yes, in, ver in chapter 3 there, I mean, it's, it's obvious to those who can see it, but when we're so impassioned by what we want, we lay that aside, and it, I'm the only one that matters. And so the passions and pleasures that wage war within us, it is the prideful weapon, that evil, that Satan will use against God's creation to continue to do what he really ultimately wants to do, and that is to cause division. Because the further he can divide, the further he can weaken. And ultimately what Satan wants to do is to destroy the church. Well, and not only the church, but Christians in all of their vocations. Uh, here in the United States, in just a few days, uh, we'll be voting, and people have already voted. And whenever you deal with the uh, politics of the world, you get division. And, and like Paul said, you know, in some ways, you know, it's, you, you, divisions are necessary so, because everyone can't be right. On the other hand, the way in which we interact with one another um, betrays what we truly believe about the value of other human beings. And so Christians shouldn't be involved in some of the horrific divisiveness that we see, even in politics, even these things that you might be very passionate about. But that applies doubly, of course, to the church. Right. 
And it also then leads into the next couple of verses, what you just said there. Instead of that selfish desire, um, or instead of living as we, we ought, we desire and we do not have, and so what do we do? We we murder, and that's either quite physical, you know, in the real sense of the term murder, or as we're taught in the fourth commandment, in the way in which we treat one another. Um, and so that selfish desire left unsatisfied, it leads us to what's happening there in verse one, leads ultimately to murder, and then we're left in this horrific place. And a lot of that, or all of it is coming as as he says there in that next verse, you do not have because you do not ask. And the, sent, the sense there is that they're not even going to God. They know who God is. They know from where everything they have gotten that is good comes, but they don't even go to God. And this goes points us all the way back to chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously um and so for the and then he continues on in verse seven for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the lord he is a double-minded man unstable in his ways so they've laid aside this understanding of who they are as children of god all for the sake again of desiring to appease their flesh and then he goes on to say when you do ask so it's not that you don't always not go to God, and then when you do come to God, you desire to only appease your passion. And so what comes to my mind here is, um, for instance, you know, when my children were little, sometimes they would come and tell us what they were going to do instead of asking. You know, they didn't ask in the proper way, or even thinking of the prodigal son asking for what was his, but asking in the wrong way. Again, it's that passion versus, or p- passion and pleasure versus being faithful. Yeah, you do. You ask and do not receive. Undoubtedly, James had predicted that there will be people out there who say, "Well, I am asking, I am praying, I'm <laughs> begging God to give me all the pleasures that I desire." And so, yeah, as a contrapuntal, we call it. He, he throws out there, "Yes, no, you are double-minded." Drawing back to chapter one, and you are asking with the wrong intentions. You know, you're not seeking to please God; you're seeking to please yourself. And that's so right. difficult. And yeah, even they're... that pleasing, even that pleasing ourselves, I think sometimes can be couched in good terms, and we don't even know it. So, for instance, we we beg that um, we be healed of a disease, or we beg that something, uh, some some temptation be removed from us. And while God wants us to come to Him with those things, occasionally it's like Saint Paul; these things are given to us for disciplinary reasons. So it's very tough for us to, at the end of our prayers, say and mean God's will be done, right? At the end Correct. of the day, God, I'm asking that I want your will to be done. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the ways that we tend to approach it is um, just in a very simple illustration of a vending machine, right? We've heard that illustration before at times, and instead of being uh, content with and being faithful to what God is and will give to us, it's almost like we want to change everything that's in that vending machine and we only want it to be the things that we want and god forbid if one of those items gets stuck and doesn't come out the way we want it to um, and then we start 
pounding against the vending machine, demanding that we have it the way we want it. And I, you know, that simple illustration in my mind really uh, points to the the way we tend to approach prayer. In these verses, he's been talking about the war within our members. It's kind of left out of verse one in the English translations. Um, but when he says, "Is it not this that your hedonisms, right, your passions, are at war within you?" In the Greek, it says, "In your members." Members, right? Different ways to look at that, right? It's it's either in the Pauline sense, the, uh, the members of your body, or it is in the sense of the members of the congregation are at war with one another. I tend to lean that it's a double entendre, right? It's, it's, it's Correct. So in yeah. these first verses, then, he's talking about, you know, the war within themselves. But in the following verses, 4 through 6, he he's talking about the same thing, but he shifts to now not the battle that you have within yourself or even within the community of God, but the battle that we have with the world. Um, anything mm-hmm. else you want to lay out before we add those verses to the discussion? Um, no, I think we, we, I mean, we could spend hours on that, but <laughs> good to move on. Yes, absolutely. Sounds good. So uh, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? But He gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, uh, when's the last time, Pastor, you stood up in the pulpit and said, You adulterous people to your congregation? <laughs> I, um, you know, I might have in the. Uh, I probably used whoring after, <laughs> as opposed sure. to that term. But um, you know, I, I, it's you hit a point there that it it's. I believe at times uh, the temptation for pastors to want to. Um, sometimes avoid such language, but it really is, it comes down to our confession of who we are as the bride of, of Christ, as the body of Christ, and to chase after anything other than him and what he has for us is to uh, have infidelity and to um, ju- do that very thing, to whore after the things that are not intended for us to, to have. Yeah, and, and that is it. That, that's what we're what, what he's really talking about here is this envy that we have, the covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So when Jesus says, right, if you lust after someone in your own heart, you've already committed adultery, it's in the same way. Adulterous in this general sense of not just getting the things that you're not supposed to have, but just even desiring them is still breaking that command. Yes, and I think this is, you know, this is a good opportunity to really emphasize the need to be 
present where we are going to be filled with what um, God needs us to be filled with. This is where our confessions um, wrestle with the idea of free will, right? It's an important to have a clear understanding and confession of what our will is. And in um, the discussion on that, our confessions say through the preaching of the law a person comes to know his sins and god's wrath through the preaching of and reflection on the holy gospel about the gracious forgiveness of sins in christ a spark of faith is kindled in him this faith accepts the forgiveness of sin for christ's sake and comforts itself with the gospel promise and the emphasis there is getting at the opposite is to trust in the satisfaction of yourself, which only leads to despair. The, the, when we chase after what we want, it's never going to be good enough. But what God continues to give to us is much better than anything, and we are always then better than we deserve because he continues to pour his grace and mercy upon us. But when we aren't able to get outside of, of ourselves, um, that internal desire will always chase us after someone else. Right, and not just someone else, but, you know, anyone other than God is uh, the world, right? Cosmos is Correct. what he uses here. So he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? But Pastor, <laughs> right. does this mean that the best place for Christians is to, you know, leave the world and start a <laughs> commune in the middle of Arizona? I mean, I don't, what do we do? Um, absolutely. <laughs> um, well, no, that is the challenge. <laughs> but no, that is the challenge in the sense that, you know, this, this phrase, friendship with the world, well, it's an oxymoron, really, of sorts. They don't blend. The church and scripture and Jesus is, as we know, countercultural, and it butts against all that the world poses to be. And it's so attractive to us, though. The world is so attractive. The way of the world is so attractive. We see people who we know don't necessarily believe in Jesus, and they're successful. They have everything that they want. Um, the world is the devil's playground of which he is the prince. And it is a mission field, though, for us. And it is a place where we are to be that whole be in the world, but not of the world. And as we we sing uh, at times in our hymns, we are but strangers here. Now, it certainly doesn't mean, though, that we forego our second table responsibilities and ignore the first article gifts of God, but we live with a second article view of life, which leads us to love others in a way that is focused on the care of the soul. And that really starts to get to the heart of what I believe James is getting at, is all of the peripheral, all of the external is what we often chase after, and all of this is uh, really about about the care of the soul, not the fulfillment of fleshly desires. And so, yes, then the challenge is, how does the church and her people and in Christian love be friends with the world, with others, without condoning adverse behavior through that friendship? And I think it's important then to have a discussion about friendship. And the best place I think that we could look at friendship or one of the foundational places is what was said in chapter 2 about Abraham. The scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God 
and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. And so when you hear this verse, you have to see that friendship is way more than a Facebook or other social media acquaintance type of friendship. It involved commitment and and fidelity or faithfulness and loyalty. Um, I read one place where true friends were uh, one soul. And so I think it's important to define friendship in a biblical way versus how the world would define friendship. And how would the world define friendship, right? Because you said earlier, you know, we really can't be friends with the world. And I think that's because the world is a toxic friend. The world only is friends with you insofar as you can help them satisfy their carnal desires or their hedonistic desires. And so the moment that you don't have any benefit to them, then they don't want to have anything to do with you. So when it comes to the church versus the world, you know, they love the church when we're uh, helping the poor or when we're, you know, uh, doing the good works that God calls us to do, that James would certainly encourage us to do. But then when we say these things are done in the name of Jesus, and Jesus is the only way to an eternal uh, hunger-free, pain-free life, then all of a sudden we're hated by the world. Correct. And or another way to say it might be to to say that the world, when you don't uh, submit to their truth, then you are no longer worth it to them. And the, the problem with that is, as has been talked about ad nauseum as of late, everyone has their own truth. And in, in that way, there is no truth. And so that obviously then really butts up against what we know as far as what God has to offer to us, and that is the truth. Now for James, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, to say that friendship with the world is enmity with God, uh, you know, and it's enmity just being this idea of uh, being an enemy of, it sounds like it a lot, you know, just being at mm-hmm. conflict with God. But then he says, therefore... Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. An enemy of God, that's strong language. It is, and that's the very thing that we were that we were uh, getting at when we were talking earlier in this hour, in that to be an enemy of God is one that replaces him with another. And um, when we chase over after uh, those idols, um, that's exactly what we're doing. And again, it's 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 really sad because we turn the precious things that God has given to us into something that we use against Him. Well, brother, we're right up against a break, so we're going to take that break. But when we return. We're going to talk a little bit about the envy that people have for the things of the world versus the jealousy that God has for his people. You know, what's the distinction? Why is God's jealousy better than our envy? Uh, We'll look into that. Uh, So we will be right back after these short messages. Stay tuned. We'll see you on the other side.
These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Booth. With me today is the Reverend Mark Loder, pastor of St. James Lutheran Church and School in Coward Lake, Minnesota. Folks, I love hearing from you, and I answer every email I receive. So be sure to send me your questions or your comments to pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. Well, Pastor Loder, before the break, we were talking about of being friends with the world, how the friendship with the world is a toxic relationship. We should seek after God, and he calls them adulterous people in this general sense of coveting and envying things that they are, uh, that, that we shouldn't be seeking after. And yet, he says, do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he, to God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Um, there's a difference between envy and jealousy uh, in general, but even here we see that God is jealous of his people. Where are the distinctions, brother? Yeah, so as we learn in the catechesis, right, with the close of the commandments, God is jealous because he doesn't desire to share us with any other God. Um, and the... Um, you know, I think it's worth looking at the first part of this verse in verse 5 as well before we get further into that question. Do you suppose it is no purpose that the Scripture says? You know, this is getting to the reality that what God's Word says does. Um, Isaiah 55, right? So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. And so the jealousy that derives from that is this reality that God knows what he has for us. He knows what he has done for us. We know what he has done for us. He desires for us to have it all the more. And what we're really getting at is he desires for us to live in our baptismal identity. Um, he he wants us to live the life that he has given to us and that's that's something that when we ignore what god's word is saying we're throwing that aside and it, it is a definite challenge for us and so what is that identity that we 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 live in and, and that is that i am a baptized child of god a temple of the holy spirit and though we live in the paradoxical reality of being a saint and sinner living a double life isn't who we are to be and that's what god i believe that jealousy is is when we choose to live that double life to do so 
is to live as one who is proud, as it'll go on to talk about. And so God opposes the proud, but gives grace to uh, the humble, as it says. And so I think the play on the word there is the jealousy that God has versus the envy that we have of the world. That enviness is what leads us to disregard the ninth and tenth commandments and disregard the contentment that we are to have in all that God has given us. You said that God, you know, he knows what he has for us, and that's so true. You know, it reminds me of Jesus. When Jesus is outside the tomb of Lazarus, and he's, he's, he weeps over the fact that Lazarus is dead, even though he knows that within the next few minutes he's going to raise him back to life. And right. even though he knows that there is a resurrection, but, but death, for instance, is not what God wants for us. And, it, and God mourns over that. And so his jealousy, uh, and for those who may be interested, a lot of people think that envy and jealousy are synonyms, and they're not. Uh, envy is to want something that someone else has, and jealousy is to be afraid that something you have will be taken from you. So in the context of God, God guards what he has. He's jealous. He does not want it taken from him, and, and envy would be, you know, maybe you know, us wanting to chase after other gods or chase after the world instead of God. And so, yeah, I love that, that he knows he's so jealous over us, not really for his own sake, but because he loves us. He doesn't want us going after these other gods, which will only lead to death. And therefore, he opposes the proud. He opposes those who say, I don't need God. I can make my, my own life choices, my own truth, my own gods. And yes, God certainly says, nope, no, for those of you who humble yourself before me, you receive something so much greater. Right. And that's the ever, you know, that's the, the beauty of the, uh, you, we can have peace in that reality, how you just said it so very well. We have peace in that reality as a baptized child of God, because we know that there's nothing, there's nothing that the world gives that can replace what God has given to me. But nonetheless, because of pride, because I am my own God, I believe, that original temptation and doubting of God's word that plagues us, there is an everlasting battle within the new man against the old man. And that's just the roots of pride nurturing the actual sin that we live out in our lives, which only produce the fruit of sin, which can lead to death we see in verses 1 through 3 a struggle within oneself, and in verses 4 through 6 a struggle with the world. In verses 7 through 10, then, the struggle is now with the devil. And so I'm going to read here, and in these same verses, 7 through 10, listen for the 10 imperatives that James puts out there. An imperative is a command. It's, a, it's a, an instruction. It, it says, do this is an imperative, so we'll listen for those as we read these verses. Here we go. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. 
So in this section, Pastor, we have uh, some, some pretty intense directives. It involves struggle with the devil, but it certainly involves struggle with the world and ourselves, too. But um, it kind of ends on a sour note, right? We wouldn't want to we wouldn't want to end a sermon like this, but he's telling them to to submit and resist and draw near and cleanse and purify and weep and mourn and change and humble. Uh, a lot of instructions here, a lot of law. Correct. And I think what is great for us to he- hear this through is the fact that God's grace overcomes all of this. All of this that he is commanding us to do has already been done in the blood of Jesus. And so when we hear that word, humble yourselves, that's to be repentant, to be regularly fed through the very source and means that give you the very things that he is commanding here, and that is to be present in word and sacrament. This is the heart of verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The primary means of submission that we have to God for the, for the Christian is reception of word and sacrament. Satan will not remain where God is present. And so we do well to be careful with the next verse, though, draw near to God and and he will draw near to you because we hear that and we might even hear this whole section and and those who who struggle with um, sanctification or progressive sanctification type thoughts, they might hear this as it's conditional, but not within the context of the entire conversation. God wants nothing to do with sin. He has defeated sin, and he has a gift for us called faith and salvation that he continues to lavish upon us. And when we draw near through repentance, he comes to us through his overabundance of grace. And again, I had mentioned the conclusion of the commandments, and that's when we, you know, when God says that, when it says that God threatens to punish all who sin against these commandments, we hear that as law as it is, but we always know where there is law, there is grace, and but he promises grace and every blessing to those who keep them. Again, it's not conditional, it's simply stating the reality that exists in God's in- eternal intention for his creation. There are people, certainly, who feel that this is conditional, right? That they must um, do certain things in order to receive God's, you know, love and approval and forgiveness. At the same time, I have to say, though, that one of the issues I think that has come out of the Lutheran emphasis on uh, uh, works, the righteousness being evil, and it, and it is, it's certainly against uh, God's design for our salvation— but when James is talking to Christians, he's speaking not from a justification point of view, right, this is how you're saved, but rather uh, this is what it looks like to be a Christian. So we wouldn't want to go so far as to say, because Christ has done these things for you, right, he submitted himself to the Father. He resisted the devil out in the desert. He drew near to God on the cross. He cleanses us and purifies our hearts, and all those things are true, and they preach. There, it's still an imperative upon us to seek to do good works, to seek to uh, to, to be after God's uh, heart by doing the things that he has told us to do. And the reason I bring that up is because in the era of the Reformation, when the Church had fallen into such great error that people were terrified, striving 
you know, vain in vain to appease God with good works, it was necessary that we proclaim the grace of God. But mm-hmm. in these last days, so to speak, I don't look out into the world or in, even into the congregations and see a bunch of people breaking their necks to try to work their way into heaven. On the other hand, I see a lot of people who say, eh, it doesn't matter, I can do whatever I want because Jesus forgives me. You know, the concept of cheap grace. Correct. So, you know, how do you see that balance in these verses? You know, we want to make sure that we don't fall off of either side of the horse, so to speak. Correct. I think a good way to simply put it is, look, if you're going to be an orange tree, you're going to produce oranges, right? If you are, uh, if you call yourself a Christian and you live your life as a Christian, by natural reality, fruit will come about. And I think that, and that also gets in connection with the following verses too of judgment and and um, uh, those those uh, words too. But I think it could just simply be stated: if you are this, this is what is produced and if that fruit is not being produced then truly what is is the condition of your heart now as i say that (laughs) it sounds like i'm doing what he says not to do in verses 11 and 12. well let's add those verses just for the sake of the conversation in verse 11 do not speak evil against one another brothers the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And then that's how he ends this section. So, yeah, I mean, we have this this eternal debate over, you know, what does it mean to judge someone else? We know we're not to judge. But does the judge not let ye be judge principle, which is so often take out of con- taken out of context, does that prohibit us from identifying sin, uh, admonishing uh, and uh, rebuking others, as is uh, as is our command from from Saint Paul? So there's a balance here too, right? We have a duty to to proclaim the things of God, law and gospel, but not cross over crossing over into judgment. And that's very difficult. Yeah, let's 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 look at this. Yeah, so I looked. You know, it says, "Do not speak evil," and I think it's very important to clarify there that that's the sense of uh, we are not to slander one another in that regard, speaking evil against one another. Because really, when we slander other, that's others. That's the verbalization of pride. That's us desiring to have someone else look worse than we are, so that we look better, and then in that way, we're putting ourselves up as as the idol Uh, but this sense of judging you know the overall context of judge not like you were talking about throughout the teaching of God's word eternal judgment is not our place and that's not you know that's a disconnect I think that that some may may have when we start talking about admonishment uh, versus judgment eternal judgment your the condition of your heart there's no way that I can make that judgment however 
what I can judge is fruit. I can look at the fruit. Um, that Matthew tells us that's how we will know false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. And so again, what it comes back to was something I mentioned a little bit earlier, is this is a matter of the soul of which we are all to be concerned about for one another. Um, later on in chapter 5, when you go over um, James chapter 5, you'll hear James say, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And so it is about this admonishment versus judgment, and it comes down to a relationship, really. Judgment that cuts someone off isn't who we are to be. Now, obviously, that we can have a discussion about that within the context of how we are told to avoid evil. But admonishment, on the other hand, is loving. Romans 15, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct, able to admonish one another. And so I think it's very important that we look at it through the sense of the care of the soul and the care for one another and then we can have a good discussion about the difference between judgment and admonishment i think that's a, a great point and very well said you know these are the type of nuances that do not make it out into the world so when the church stands up and says thus and thus is against god's will that's not necessarily saying those who are engaged in thus and thus are destined to hell, right? And there's this big distinction, right? We speak the truth of God, we let him be the judge, but we also make sure that we follow our duty to not only admonish one another, but to proclaim the truth of God in the world, without always the expectation that the world's even going to care. But we certainly still don't right. shirk our responsibility. Right, and I think, you know, a quick sidebar comment there is the necessity to make sure that we are using biblical definitions and not allowing the world to define our terms for us. Oh, that is incredibly important. But for us to be able to use biblical definitions, I'll be so bold to say, folks listening at home, we have to be in the Bible, right? So if you're listening to this program, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but there's so many well-meaning uh, Christians who have placed their faith, hope, and trust in Jesus because he's called them by the Holy Spirit, and that's wonderful, and yet they neglect the good things of God that he wants to give them in the Bible. So in this very next section, it's kind of disconnected with the rest of it, um, but when I was growing up down south, a common phrase, and I'm sure it's elsewhere, is, uh, well, uh, if the Lord wills, right? And actually we would say, if the Lord wills and the creek don't rise, <laughs> so it took me a, a good 20 years to figure out that when my grandma would say, if the Lord wills and the creek don't rise, she wasn't talking about water. She was talking about the Creek Indians. That's where that phrase comes from. If the, if the Lord wills and the creek don't rise up against us. So, you know, it's uh, probably not a super appropriate uh, verse. I'm sorry, a slogan to say today. But sure, I, still find right. myself, I still find myself saying it. But that comes directly from these passages, which finish out this chapter. So we're going to read verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? 
for you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord will, we will live and do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. All right, brother, if the Lord wills, we'll get through this in the next uh, you know, nine minutes. That's in the, the, the episode. But, yeah, so, you know, what, what is the uh, – it's kind of a shift in what he's been talking about. So what's the context around what he's trying to communicate here? One of the things that stands out to me on this is it, it, we, you know, it, it connects in the sense that we are such a proud people that we believe we can control absolutely everything to the point that we think we can control our retirement, that we can ret- control um, everything that happens. And, you know, that's one way to look at this and say, okay, well, this don't have a, you know, here goes your uh, your um, retirement funds, get rid of those. Uh, not a lot of people will be very happy to hear something like that. But let's look at the heart of that, right? The heart of the, what's, what's coming about here is contentment. And I think this is really the tie-in with the rest of the chapter as well, because if we truly lived in the contentment of who we are as children of God and all of the things that God gives to us, None of what is happening, none of the wars and the enviness and all of the passion, the, the chasing after the passions of the flesh would happen. And that's really the ninth and 10th commandment issue. But obviously the ninth and 10th commandments are broken in light of the first. We make ourselves God. We believe what we believe and know that what we can have is better than what God gives to us. And so it comes back to what I talked about a little bit earlier, that pleasure of the passion, pleasure, passion versus faith again. Do we truly have faith in the fact that, yeah, it sounds cliche, right? The Lord will provide, and he certainly does. Now, there's plenty of ways that he provides. There are certainly times that out of the blue, something might come to us and really helps us out in our situation. But he also gives us the gift of reason and the ability to work and the ability to be a part of answering the needs that we have in our life. And so one way that I like to look at this too is that all we have and do is by God's gift of grace through opportunities. And this includes even the struggles of life. For as I just read to the kindergartners this morning, the story of Joseph, you know, that story of Joseph would be something that none of us would necessarily volunteer for uh, until he had all of the riches of, of Egypt, maybe. But we would not volunteer to go through that life but to be able to look at his brothers at the end of it all, who were fearing for their lives, and say to them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, is true contentment. And so uh, whoever, um, you know, look at the, the last verse there, right? Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So what does discontentment cause us to do? discontentment causes us to throw the second table and the first table of the entirety of the law out simply for the sake of living life the way we want to live it. 
And to go back to where it's he's talking about, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You know, often I say at a funeral, we don't know who or when we are going to be gathered next in this same fashion. For we are all but one breath away from being the reason that we have gathered before the mortal remains of a dear child of God. And so with that in mind, I think it's vital that we really pay attention to um, what it means to be content. Yeah, I like the ways in which you have connected it to the verses before it, because I've always seen it more as connected to the verses that follow in chapter 5. But in the way that you've explained it, I guess I could very much see this as a transitional verse, right? Because what follows is a warning to the rich, and certainly Mm -hmm. the rich would be those who would be concerned about trade and profit, as he mentions here. But, you know, if the rich are oppressing the people to whom James is writing— and so James is going to speak against the rich, this makes a great uh, connection that even in their own lives, they are doing things that perhaps they go around condemning the rich for doing. Uh, And so in that way, this is something that you don't have to be wealthy to to appreciate. Uh, But at the very last verse, which is going to be the very last thing we're able to talk about, verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So sins of omission are a thing, and this is a, a great, I guess, proof text, so to speak, for it. Uh, but it, you know, is it is it greater than that, or is is that pretty much it? You know, we must understand that our our knowledge of the things that we do, that we're sorry, that we need to do, uh, mean that we are then obligated to, you know, not only just not break the law, but keep the law. Correct. And I think, you know, for hearers, especially of this uh, program and to Christians, I think the greatest sin of omission that we have is the omission of adhering to reading and being in God's Word regularly and receiving His sacrament regularly. Because those, when we are in Word and Sacrament, It's not that we will be removed from sin and our temptations will completely go away. I've even talked about in Bible study of how when we are in the Word and the more we are in the Word and the more we are receiving the sacrament, we can expect Satan to attack us even harder uh, because that's not where he wants us. You know, Satan isn't necessarily going to waste his time with those who are omitting and failing to do things because, well, you're helping him out already. You're doing the job for him. And so I think it is it is very crucial to start at the heart of who we are and living your baptismal identity by being in word and sacrament and not omitting that from your your responsibility of being a child of God. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Mark Loader, pastor of St. James Lutheran Church and School in Howard Lake, Minnesota. Pastor, thank you so much for being on the show. I've enjoyed it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And thank you, folks, listening at home, either over the air or online or the podcast. Uh, I've been your host, Pastor Phil Booth. Monday, we tackle the end of St. James' Epistle when the Reverend David Bass joins us for our study of Chapter 5. Then Tuesday, 
brand new book, the book of Exodus, which will take us through the, uh, well, the middle of January. So don't miss it. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong words. <laughs> 